Okay. All right, well, let's get started. We're only a couple of minutes late, but nevertheless, we'll get going. Tonight, we are making our move into the New Testament. So last week, we finished, um, uh, Scott walked us through prophetic history, uh, breakneck speed run through the prophets, and then Drew talked a little bit about um, their, the content of their message and the theology that undergirded a lot of what the prophets had to say. Um, and, and if you haven't been, if you haven't read any prophetic books in a while, I would encourage you to do so. I've been reading um, Isaiah this week, and it is a, it is a dark, a dismal, and an incredibly hopeful book. And it's a collection of sermons that this prophet gave over a lifetime of ministry, and it's incredible. And I would, I would say you can learn a whole lot about the character and the heart of God from. Um, reading the men who spoke for him uh, to the nation of Israel before Jesus came along. But nevertheless, we're in week six. Is this week six? Six. And we are moving into the New Testament. Now, before we get there, I want to spend um, about 40 minutes covering some ground on some stuff that we actually don't have a lot of information on, at least in our own hands. It's out there and you can easily find it, but we don't often carry it. And I'm talking about um, the fact that our Bibles jump from Malachi to, um, to Matthew. They, there's an incredible amount of time that is completely ignored, um, enlarged by the Protestant church, and that would be the 400 years of, what's known as the 400 years of silence. But the period of time between the return of the exile Return from Babylon, and then the beginning of the New Testament. So we have, in charge, basically whenever they come back from Babylon, you have the kind of the authority figures in the nation would have been the priests, and then you had governors. They functioned as kings, but basically political leaders. Um, and here's, the, here's where we need to, to bridge a bit of a gap so that we can read our New Testaments well, so that we can understand the message of Jesus and His first followers. Is We have to see, how do we get from a nation that is coming back, whose country, whose, whose flagship city, Jerusalem, whose flagship building, establishment, the temple, are effectively in ruins. The, the temple that they rebuilt, that the nation itself rebuilt, was a, a piece of junk compared to Solomon's temple. And it wasn't until you have um, a, a pagan come in and, and build this beautiful temple, um, Herod's second temple, that, that you have some, uh, somewhat of a restoration of the earlier decadence of the nation. But you have a nation in shambles that has returned in the, um, in the mid-5th century, 430s-ish B.C., and then when we open up our Bibles with Matthew and Luke, you have these, these figures um, kind of running the show. You have a group known as the Pharisees. You have the Sadducees. And I never know if there's two D's, two C's. I know there's two E's. Um, both of these sit somewhat underneath the authority of a group known as the Herodians. And we'll talk about them. And then there's a group that sits kind of underneath all the New Testament. They're never necessarily named, but they are very, very prevalent. A group known as the Essenes. And we look at this, there's 400-ish years between where we come out of Babylon here, roughly the 430s. 
And then Matthew and Luke begin in, I believe, 4 B.C. And we have a whole, a whole new set of groups, traditions, and issues, and cultures that Jesus and His first followers are going to speak into. And if we're to understand their message well, if what Drew is going to talk about regarding the kingdom of God is going to resonate with us, if we're going to understand it, well, we've got to know the background. So I want to spend a little bit of time bridging this gap and talking about what happened from here to here. Now you have this chart, and it's, I know, I know the, the, the writing is small, but that's just going to have to be uh, the way it is. That's how you fit it on an 8.5 by 11. But this has a lot of the connections that I think we're going to need to work through in order to understand some of these things. So that blue bubble, the one that you can't read, the text is not showing up very well, that says return from Babylon. So that's this. Going this direction, we'll go up to the purple, um, to the purple bubbles first. We have to understand the priesthood. Somebody tell me, Anthony probably knows, somebody tell me, how does one in the Old Testament um, attain the designation of a priest? Anthony. So it's a, it's a family thing. You can't just go to priest school. Like it wasn't some sort of um, Jewish seminary. It's a, it's a hereditary thing. You have to be able to trace your ancestry back to Aaron specifically. And even as the, as the generations go on, the line becomes more and more narrow. You, the, the, the priesthood is a family affair. Even more particular than that is the office of the high priest. This is not something that was voted on. This is not something that was um, uh, something that a good priest, a young priest, could aspire to. It was set. There was a distinct track over who could be a priest in general and who could be a high priest. Now, the high priest, it's important to realize this, the high priest, when Solomon, the first king of Israel, uh, when Saul, the first king of Israel, takes the throne, is a priest by the name of Zadok. And his name... Um, in terms of him, is relatively not helpful or meaningful. But remembering his name, remembering his bloodline is incredibly important. Because Saul, bad king though he was, he was God's anointed king. And you see this in David's careful treatment of him. Even though David himself has been anointed king, he's very careful not to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. There's some sort of reverence here. Now, if Saul's high priest is Zadok, when David takes the throne, is it David's job to appoint a new high priest? No. The high priesthood is set. It's a family affair. And yet, David comes in and appoints a man named Abiathar as the high priest. But he doesn't depose Zadok. He has two high priests. This doesn't work very well. So now you have, for the first time in the, nation, in, the, in the history of the nation of Israel, a legitimate and an illegitimate high priest. And this is the beginning of all sorts of problems. Now keep that in mind and we'll come back to it. Um, shortly after the, um, the Israelites returned, so we're talking 430s. Does anybody know in the 300s what sort of world power comes and starts to shake things up? Shout it out. You whispered it. Uh, the Macedonians come in. Alexander the Great does what he does. And he, by the age of 26, conquers the known world. 
Anybody coming up on 26 and feeling a little inadequate when you look at what Alexander the Great did? Conquered nation after nation after nation. How do you conquer nations well in the ancient world? I don't kill everybody. I don't even necessarily need to take them as slaves. I need them to be like me. That's how I can extend my influence and assert my sovereignty. Is I, ne- I don't need to lay waste to Jerusalem. I need to make the people in Jerusalem, the people in Judea, I need to make them Greek. And if I can make them Greek, then they will serve my empire and I can continue to expand and push beyond. So what does Alexander do? He not only crushes anyone who's in his way, but those who will submit to him, he wants to do three things. He wants to expand the Greek form of commerce and infrastructure. That would be roads, the money system. He wants to expand the Greek way of thinking, the Greek philosophy. We'll get into Plato and Aristotle here in a little bit. These things, I promise all this stuff seems relatively disconnected, but it comes to a head at Jesus in the New Testament. So, commerce, infrastructure, philosophy, the way we think, and then finally, and perhaps most importantly, for those of you who enjoy reading your Bibles in English, the Greek language. Incredibly important, and Alexander expands this empire by the age of 26, by going in, destroying anyone who would get in his way, and then forcing everyone else to assimilate to his um, systems and his thought and his language. Now, what is that kind of um, conquering called? It's got a very specific name. Hmm? Hellenism. To Hellenize something is to go and make it Greek. And that's what Alexander set out to do, and he did it very, very well. And you have all of this sitting behind the, um, the, the, the New Testament background. We'll get into some of the specifics of how those Greek things play out, but let's talk about this. Alexander dies suddenly. He's still out on the battlefield, still conquering, still pushing the edges of the empire. He dies suddenly. His, he, he, when a powerful ruler dies unexpectedly, there's typically not much of a plan in terms of succession to the throne, to who's going to run the empire now. So the, nation, the, the empire actually gets divided amongst seven um, entities. And before, by the time all the power struggle shakes out, you have four major powers. You can see here, we're, we're now in the green section on your chart. You have um, these first two, won't matter too much to us, but you have the Attalids and the Antigonids. That would be Turkey and Macedonia, or Greece, respectively. But then you have these two other um, generals of Alexander the Great who sets up these major kingdoms, and they are going to be very, very important. So we have... A the G, Alexander the Great. He splits into four major areas, and two of them are going to matter to us. The one to the north is the Seleucid Empire. Think Syria. Think, generally speaking, everything north of Judea. And then the power to the south would be the Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic Empire. The Ptolemies. Think Egypt. Now, when all this is coming to a head on how the early church thought, we have to remember two additional things about these. This is a Western empire that thinks like Westerners. And this is an Eastern empire that thinks like Easterners. 
So between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire, you have a little nation known as Judea. And for most of the time of the, quote, 400 years of silence, that time that we don't necessarily have in our Bibles, by the way, pick up any Catholic Bible, it's not wrong, it's actually very helpful, and you'll find two books that talk about this period of time called First and Second Maccabees. If you have version, you have several Catholic Bibles you can download right now, and they are very much worth reading, First and Second Maccabees. If you like things like Lord of the Rings, go read Bell and the Dragon. There's lots of really good apocalyptic literature in there. I would say go read it. Um, but we have a power struggle here between the Seleucid Empire, the Eastern Empire to the North, Eastern, North, I know, but they think like Easterners, and then the, to the South you have those who think like the Westerners. And this power struggle is going to go on for a little while until you have a family but that, whose head is the, um, his name is Matthias Maccabee. It doesn't necessarily matter because we're going to get to an important um, descendant of his. But what the nation is now struggling with is you have these foreign armies, foreign governments, foreign cultures that are now pressing in on the nation of Judea and, or, or the nation of Israel. And they are trying so hard to remain pure to Yahweh at this point. After all, they have been punished severely by going into exile. Assyria, 722. They've been punished severely going into captivity in Babylon, 586. And why were they punished? What is one of the main reasons that the nation of Israel and then the southern nation of Judah went into captivity? What did the prophets say? Idolatry. Some of the prophets will put, you have whored after other gods. You have been prostitutes to other gods. There was this rampant polytheism. This 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 terrible um, tendency towards worshiping other gods that got them in trouble. When the Jews come back, they will never make that mistake again. So now they're wrestling with this because you have Greek influence, you have um, Syrian influence coming in and conquering the nation and saying, you will worship the way we want you to worship. And you have coming in a Seleucid king named Antiochus Epiphanes. who effectively makes it in the nation of Israel, in the, in the area of Judea, makes it illegal to do Jewish things. One of the most benign things he does is go into the temple and slaughter a pig. Absolutely detestable to a good Jew. The next thing he does is he takes a, a sword or a knife or whatever and he cuts the priests. Doesn't kill them, just cuts them maims them, disfigures them, so that they are unfit to go before God and to offer sacrifices. If you have a Torah, he will burn it. If you say prayers, you'll be killed. You cannot be Jewish when Antiochus Epiphanes is on the, the Seleucid throne and ruling over the area of Jerusalem. To a good Jewish family, this would be the pit of despair. But most of them went with it because they didn't have the power to defend themselves. Now, there is one family... Matthias Maccabees and his family and he basically said I'm not going to do it I'm not going to bow down to these gods and the, the, the Seleucid Empire said fine if you won't we'll have someone worship for you we'll find another Jew that can act as your representative and he will bow down before our gods in your place and Matthias says no not going to happen and so he just kills that Jew 
says, I'd rather have blood on my hands than worship another god. And he runs off into the desert, and then he dies pretty quickly after that. But his sons take up the effort. Simon, Maccabee, Maccabee just means the hammer. They were very violent people and could handle their own. Simon, Maccabee, they come in and they, they, they push back the Seleucid Empire. They take back Israel and they basically purify it. And they say, we're not going to worship other gods. We learned our lesson in Assyria and in Babylon. We're going to fight. And, John, and, and they, So you have Simon, and then get rid of him. You now have a revolutionary, a, a Jewish revolutionary named John Hyrcanus, who comes in, great warrior, pushes the boundaries of the nation back, almost to the extent that Solomon had way back whenever the nation was at its peak before the nation divided into north and south. They take back the land and they set up a pure Jewish state that will worship well. Now these guys, so John Hyrcanus makes an alliance with these guys. Even though this is a bit of a problem, when you've got two people that are putting pressure on you, the most helpful thing you can do is to make an alliance with one of them. So they make an alliance with the Seleucids to push back the Ptolemies. So if I got an enemy to my south and an enemy to my north, I'd rather just deal with one of them. So the only problem is these guys get wiped out by an Italian nation called the Etruscans. Again, a little bit irrelevant, but the Seleucids are now gone. But you now have a powerful Israel. Their enemy to the north is gone. Now we just have a weakened enemy to the south, and they push back the Ptolemies. And Israel experiences a, relative, a relatively luxurious period of sovereignty and freedom. About 100, 150 years. They've got the nation back. They deal with the Ptolemies. And John Hyrcanus was um, a very, very zealous man who got the nation back to where it needed to be. Now, if I've expanded the country back, Remember, I've had these foreigners living in this land, and I've taken my territory back. Well, now here's my problem as a Jewish leader. I've got a lot of Gentiles in my territory. So I'm going to convert them to Judaism. That's all. I'm not going to get rid of them. I'm going to convert them to Judaism. I'll use a sword if necessary. So John Hyrcanus goes throughout the land, converts all these foreigners to Judaism, and now he's got a problem. How do we hold them to our standards? Remember, we, we worship a God who has revealed himself and his law in the Torah. How do we hold them to these standards? Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We have the temple in Jerusalem, but that might not be enough. Our nation is getting pretty big and prosperous. We've got a lot of people. Let's do this. Let's invent something called a synagogue. Let's put a place of worship in every major area, everywhere that has at least 10 Jewish men. We'll put a synagogue there. And they can offer prayers and worship, and the Torah can be read in their local communities. That's great, John Hyrcanus. Now, how do we kind of deal with this? How do we do quality control? I know. I will create a new system. I have the priests. That's, that's good enough. But I'll create a new system. I'll call them the Pharisees. So I'm going to raise up common men, but relatively educated men, who are going to be scribes, lawyers. They're going to be... Um, they're going to be men who are going to be zealous for God's law and will hold the people in their communities accountable to God's law. These are going to be relatively conservative men, but they're going to do what we need in, in terms of this big nation, and now we're all worshiping um, God again. 
So, John Hyrcanus does that. He's very, very theologically conservative, I'll say, because he, um, with the Pharisees, and I'll, I'll just kind of tip my hand before I get to the end, he establishes a system of men who believe in many things, but namely, a resurrection. That's going to be an issue here in a second. Now John has, he is, by the way, the first... Um, the first person to serve as both the supreme monarch, think governor, not necessarily a king, although effectively he was that, but a governor and the high priest. Because at this point, Abiathar was, the wrong, was not the right priest. Zadok was the line from which the true priesthood came. And you get this phrase called the Zadokian priest. It dies out, and John Hyrcanus is elected to the priesthood. Elected. He is not... Someone who takes the priesthood by lineage is not something that he inherited from the correct, proper, the, the, the Zadokian line. He is elected high priest. Okay, it's going to be a bit of an issue. We'll get there. John's sons, remember, very conservative, thinks in an Eastern mindset, resurrection. His sons, after they push back the borders, are educated in Egypt. That's going to be a bit of a problem because now they're going to take on some of that Greek philosophy. Egypt, Greece, I know we, know, we, we understand that that's not the same thing, but the, the center of education in Egypt is a monster city called Alexandria. Very, 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 very Greek in the way that it thinks. His sons are educated there, and it would probably be good now to talk about those philosophies that the Greek, uh, that Alexander the Great brought to this part of the world. So you have um, the, your red bubbles there. What is Hellenism? What is Hellenism? We already talked. It's commerce. It's a common commerce, a common philosophy, and a common language. Now look at the common philosophy. You have two big names. There were many others. These are not, by any stretch of the imagination, the only guys that were relevant to the Greek uh, system of thought. But the two names that are the most prominent, guys who were um, acquaintances, they actually were... Uh, they, I can't remember if it was, I think Aristotle taught at this university that Plato was educated at, either that or flip it around, one of the two. They knew each other. They had two specific ways of thinking, and they're both dealing with this, this concept. If you read their writings, they're both dealing with this concept of harmartia. In English, we call it sin. In Greek, it really just means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. And Plato and Aristotle are wrestling with this. And they both had very different views of, of what humanity was re uh, relevant to sin. Plato was the guy who had a very, very bleak view, almost a, a nihilistic view. But he said, all of man is corrupt. Physically corrupt, mentally corrupt. Here's a, a, a little bit of a... These are all very small summaries of a very complicated system of thought. So don't take my word for it, but these are, these are generally what these, these guys think. Plato. All of man is defective, and man has no awareness of himself. And then he would say that the, the remedy for this problem is that we need to recover our autonomous will. To be, to, to be without sin is to think autonomously, to think um, perfectly for one's own self. And he says, so often man doesn't do that. 
It doesn't matter what Drew has to say about Ryan. It doesn't matter what John has to say about Ryan. It's what can Ryan, like how can he best understand himself, think for himself, decide for himself, live out of his own sovereign will. That's Plato's ideal, the Platonic ideal. And man can't do this. Man can't do this. But the problem with this way of thinking is it's so dismal with no hope of redemption. You can just live however you want. This leads to an incredible, um, to, to a system of thought that has a very bleak view of the world, but let's just live it up while we got it. Let's just, let's just live however we want. Now you can see why this system of thought affects things in the New Testament, because if you have these men, so think of Plato's philosophy as taking root down here very deeply. If you have some Jewish men being, powerful Jewish men being educated in that system, well, they are going to eventually, we won't go through all the steps, but eventually establish a group who think that the body is ruined, useless, and just damned, so live however you want. A group that does not believe in the resurrection. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die type mentality. These are going to be very, very powerful figures in the New Testament. So powerful that they can get Jesus killed, and they do. John Hyrcanus establishes the very conservative religious sect. Very, very moralistic, but with the thought that the resurrection is possible. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going through it, but that type of thinking comes from the, uh, the Aristotelian perspective, the, the, the thoughts of Aristotle. These guys also serve uh, in the priesthood. They establish the Sadducees. Now, what about the Herodians? What about the Herodians? The last of the, quote, Maccabean generals, one of the last of the Maccabean generals, was an Idumean governor named Herod the Great. Now we're starting to get into New Testament names. Herod the Great, one of the final Maccabean, he was a military guy, he was from the, the, the region of Idumean, which would be south of Jerusalem. He had uh, alliances with a guy named Pompey. Powerful guy. The only problem with Pompey, Pompey's good friend to have. Only problem is Caesar hates him. Caesar has him killed. Now, now Herod the Great has a problem. Because his, his closest ally, his most powerful ally, was just killed by an even more powerful man named Caesar. So Herod says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fill up treasure troves, and I'm going to send a tribute to Caesar. He's, he's, he's smart enough to know you go with whoever's the most powerful. In a land where you can kill and be killed very, very easily, go with the most powerful guy. So Herod the Great sends him an incredible treasure trove, an incredible tribute, and Caesar loves it. Sets Herod the Great up as the the ruler of this area, as the the Jewish va- or the, the the Roman kind of um, extension to this vassal state. By the way, um, that that takeover where we go from autonomous nation to now we're in the pocket of Rome again. We're kind of Herod the Great sits over us. Happened in 63 A.D. or B.C. Sorry, 63 B.C. And you have the Herodians. These are powerful men. They would think a lot like this. So they, 
neither would they necessarily believe in the resurrection, despite some of what you see in the gospel accounts in terms of his fear. But these guys are, are going to think a lot like the Sadducees. Then you have the Essenes. The Essenes would be, um, you have them at the very bottom of your page there. They would be um, ascetics, meaning they would want to deny the body. They thought a lot like the Pharisees. They believed in the resurrection. So much so, so much so that they would read Old Testament passages about salvation and redemption and view that like salvation to an Essene was the resurrection of their body. Their bodies are corrupt, so we're going to deny our body all earthly pleasures and just hold out for the bodily resurrection. These were men that committed themselves to um, a very, very high standard when it comes to the Torah. They didn't write the Torah. That would be these guys. These guys would be the scribes that would copy the Torah. But the Essenes were those guys, they were like the ancient librarians. They would keep archives. So if, if this is my Torah, and they never really had a full copy like this, but imagine this is a scroll of one book. And this is, this is carefully written by a Pharisee scribe carefully written, no mistakes whatsoever because we have a very strong process of copying the text where there's, there's just no errors. Carefully written. However, I've been using this for years and it's getting old and tattered. This is the Word of God. We need to treat this with reverence and respect. So when a scene would come up, would commission a new copy of that tattered text, get the synagogue a good copy of Isaiah's scroll, and then they would take that old tattered one and they would go store it in a cave. You'd store things in caves where it's dry and humidity is not going to mess with it. And you get this, uh, this wonderful discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which is where the Essenes have been collecting text after text after text after text. Now, just a little bit of an excursus on the, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. i got a little bit of time. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found less than 100 years ago. 1940s, I believe. 1940s? 47. So when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now these are copies of, um, not just the Hebrew Scriptures, by the way, many other writings, sermons, things like that. But these, are, these date to, the, uh, to, to pre-Christ. So think B.C. The copy, and, and up to this point, our Bibles have been being translated from what's known as the Masoretic Text, which was written in 800 A.D., so about 1,200 years ago. This is what we're copying our Bibles from. They go and find these scrolls that are a thousand years older than that. And they, pull, they, they, they piece together Isaiah's, Isaiah's, the book of Isaiah. Piece together the scrolls, compare it to the Masoretic text. The text we had was 99.9% accurate to what they were using a thousand years beforehand. So in 1947, we realized that the, the text we thought we had was 1,200 years old, was actually more like 2,000 years old in terms of its accuracy. So the, uh, this is important. That beautiful passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant that seems so easy and convenient to make up after Jesus dies. I mean, it just lines up too well. We'd have to write that out to the fact to really smush it and make the prophecy match. They've found that it, there's plenty of evidence to support that it, we had copies at least a hundred years before that. It really lends some credibility to Messianic prophecy. But nevertheless, you have the Essenes. 
that were um, the archivists, and they did believe in the resurrection. Now, let's talk about how these people related to one another. The Pharisees, they get a lot of treatment from Jesus in the Gospels. Doesn't always go so well for them, but they believed in the resurrection. These were people, they, they had, they had a, 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 something of a council, you could call it a senate, called the Sanhedrin. Seventy men. And whenever, it was, uh, whenever you needed to decide some issue or a matter, you'd have 70 men, each of them gets one vote. 70 individual votes. The Sadducees, remember, who can trace their, 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 this, their lineage back to this very Greek system of thought and through the sons of John Hyrcanus, they had, this is where the high priesthood resided. These guys were very, very wealthy men who found it advantageous to be in bed with Rome. It's smart to align yourself with the powerful people that are truly controlling the land. So you'd have the high priesthood. By the way, um, Herod the Great's first appointment, because we've, we've lost the real high priesthood, his first appointment to high priest was a young man named Caiaphas, who you'll see at the end of a couple of Gospels as being a guy very instrumental in killing Jesus. If Caiaphas is the first high priest appointed by King Herod, but the Sadducees, the high priests, he had, instead of the Sanhedrin, 70 individual votes, the high priest himself had 71 votes. He can't lose on a matter. What he says goes. Now this doesn't seem, it's not quite so skewed as it might seem, because the Sanhedrin, uh, or the Sadducees, they, they didn't enjoy a lot of popularity with the people. Why would I like you? You are really close to the Romans who are just an oppressing foreign army. Nevertheless, you are the high priest and we must kind of fall in line with you, but begrudgingly so. The Pharisees were more like common men who could sway the opinion of the people. And a a high priest, the high priesthood at this point is again something that you could kill and be killed in order to get. I could bribe someone very powerful and then order an assassination on the current high priest and then have that powerful person prop me up as the new high priest. So you still needed the, 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 the opinions of the people. And it's that, that interplay between power of yes and no vote and the power of giving a voice to the people with the connections to Rome and their ability slash desire to crucify insurrectionists. You couple those three things together, and I think that it starts to make a lot of sense why Galatians 4 starts to call the time of Jesus the fullness of time. Uh, My professor, uh, my early church history professor said there, there was technically only about a 50 to 75 year period in all of human history where a man like Jesus would get killed like he did for saying the things he did. So in order to be crucified for claiming to be God, you would need to find people who are very ideologically conservative, people who are very ideologically liberal, and have them both have some sort of influence or connection to a nation that crucifies people like Rome. And you need to be able to do that in a way where it's public. That's where I need the Greek language. Thank you for Paul being able to write all over the Mediterranean in a way that could be understood. And again, Galatians 4, at the fullness of time, Jesus came. Um, 
the fact that the resurrection is such a contentious issue is because if you read, it's in... Um, Is it John 10 or 11? The raising of Lazarus. 11? When Jesus raises Lazarus, He has to this point not enjoyed a lot of um, favor with the Jewish leadership. But when you start talking about a guy who has the power to raise dead people to life, well, you're rubbing up against a very hot issue with some of the powerful men. And it's at that point that John tells us that they resolve to kill him. I don't know why killing a guy that can raise the dead sounds like a good idea. They weren't thinking it through. But it was this issue. And it's important to see how those systems of thought played into all of it. Um, Because these people, the Essenes and the Pharisees, believed in the resurrection, they were more ripe to hear the message of Jesus. And it's thought that those two groups in terms of the men that those groups in, uh, had in them formed a very large part of the early church. Many of the um, apostles' early converts would have been Pharisees and Essenes. So, um, any questions? This is, and so like now you see we're here in the New Testament area. There's a lot that went on in between this stuff. And it's important to think about some of the things that sit in the background of these um, uh, of these gospels that we value so much. Questions? Yeah, what, you hear the, what does the vote thing mean? Like, the what? You're talking about like 70 votes and 70 votes. I'm talking about the, the uh, if you had, so the 70 votes, you see, you see whenever they're arresting Jesus. They, they're taking the issue between, before a group known as the Sanhedrin. This would be the, the elite Pharisees who would decide... Um, remember, the Pharisees are made up of scribes and lawyers and teachers of the law. These would be guys who would be making decisions for, um, on how they're going to rule on, in a case such as if, if, if someone accused um, Kelsey of blasphemy, well, we would have to hear that out before the Sanhedrin. The, think of it as something of a, a senate We'd have to, or, a, or a, a supreme court, whatever you want to call it. We would have to hear that out. And then you bring in the high priest who has 71 votes to kind of make the final ruling. That would be Caiaphas or his, one of his, actually I think four or five of his sons all served as high priests. So. So there were no Herodians in? Well, I mean, they could by just sheer <laughs> military power assert their will. But the, these guys were really there to make sure that the money train back to Rome never dried up. They loved, especially in religious disputes, to let these idiots handle it in their minds. Like, I don't want to deal with your petty problems. Deal with your religious crap on your own. It's kind of how they would view it. Make sure you're still paying taxes, though. That would be the job of a Herodian. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. In in the Mediterranean world, Jerusalem would have been one of the greatest assets to have in terms of shipping routes. Um, it's at the pocket of the Mediterranean, lots of ports. It's at this crossroads between 
Asia, Europe, and Africa. And so whoever controlled this area could control commerce very, very well. And so it was, it's actually amazing that the Roman army allowed Israel to continue existing um, as a vassal state or as a client state um, when they could have just ran it over and used it as a shipping outpost. But like I always say, the Bible doesn't know anything about serendipity. We'll just lean on the providence of God that that didn't actually happen that way. Anything else? Just waving at a gnat, so that was not a question. Okay, take a couple of minutes, get something to, to top off your drinks, go to the restroom, whatever, and we'll pick back up here in a second talking about the kingdom of God. All right. Um, so when we get started, I hope you uh, probably are catching it. Obviously, you know we, we just made it into the New Testament, which means we've come actually to the last of our series of covenants that we've gone through. So starting with Adam, the Edemic Covenant, um, back in question mark BC, and then into Abraham in 2000 uh, BC, and then uh, on into the Mosaic Covenant, which is again at 1456 or 1290, um, Davidic Covenant around 1000 BC, and and then we uh, then we've moved into. So that was our last one as we were talking through the prophets, which fell in the along the lineage of the kings and under that kind of Davidic Covenant umbrella. And now we're making the transition this week into the new covenant and the final covenant and the one that that really does fill up and therefore fulfill all the others to so that there's not 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 really any need for them anymore so the story has progressed to this but obviously we're spending the last half on this new because there's so much to unpack in it today we're talking um kind of in the gospels in that section of as as he transitioned us from old to new now we're talking through the gospels but specifically one aspect um Man, we've we've we're trying to cover the whole Bible in ten weeks, and so I I, I feel like I, I can say this at the beginning of every lesson: we're not going to do justice to this topic. Um, the topic that we're doing right now, we could have done the whole summer on, um, but but I want to take one aspect that that really is a big aspect of the Gospels and and fits in well with the way the story moves through Scripture and talk about that a little bit. Um, I, wonder, I want to see if you guys have heard this phrase before because I've heard preachers slash teachers say this a lot and, and I'm always thinking maybe I'm the only one, but I've heard it uh, mentioned multiple times before and that is this. Jesus talked about blank more than anything else. Jesus talked about this more than anything else in the world. Do you guys, have you heard this, this statement, this quote from preachers? What, what are these just saying? Jesus talked about what more than anything else? Okay, what, what do we have? Hell. Hell, okay. Actually, this is, this is one of the, so this is one of the comparisons this gets. He talked about hell more than heaven, and that is true. And then they say this. He talked about this more than heaven and hell combined. Money. And, and that's, well sort of semi-true, but then they go on to a lot of times say, and I've heard this, Jesus talked about money more than anything else, talked about money more than any other topic, and, and, and really that's just not true. Um, Jesus used money imagery a whole lot. 
Jesus used money terminology a whole lot. Jesus used money stories a whole lot. But in almost every case, he's using money stories to explain what he really talked about more than anything else. And that is what? The kingdom of God. That is what Jesus comes and, and, and talks about over and over and over again more than anything else in the Bible. The word kingdom, basileia in the Greek, comes up over 120 times in the Gospels, primarily in Matthew and then quite a bit in Luke. So like half of it is in Matthew and then a whole bunch in Luke and then you got a little bit in Mark. But um, So over and over again, this idea of the kingdom of God comes up. When Jesus steps onto the scene in Mark's Gospel, the very first words out of his mouth, are about the kingdom. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And so this is the first thing that he states. When he gives a statement about his purpose, why did Jesus come? If you were to, if you were to just kind of answer that question in your head, why did Jesus come? This is what he says in Luke 4, so that I could preach the, the kingdom of God. So I could preach about the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, there's obviously, there's a bigger answer than that, but that's one of the major statements that Jesus gives. Over and over again, we see this, that Jesus' teaching and his life, his ministry, are meant for this to reveal the kingdom of God to people. This is so central to the gospel, so central to Jesus and his ministries. And here's the really weird part, is that it is really, really central to Jesus and yet most Jesus followers struggle to really explain what that is. What is the kingdom of God? And, and, and Jesus calls it the gospel. I'm coming to give the gospel of the kingdom of God. And, when, and, and in the book of Acts, when they start preaching their gospel, a lot of times they're presenting what they call the good news of or the, the gospel of the kingdom. And, and yet when we share the gospel, I don't, I don't hardly ever hear that word pop into our gospel presentations or into what we're talking about in those things. But it's huge for them. We're actually going to close this whole series in a few weeks. We're going to close the whole series with the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God in light of what we've been studying here? Um, so I'm getting ahead of myself right now. But Jesus, uh, we'll go back, would drive a lot of it back to this, back to the kingdom. We may struggle to know what that is. Um, a lot of Christians may wonder, what exactly does he mean by the kingdom of God? His original audience would have right away had a mental picture. As soon as he comes on the scene and says, um, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is near, like they've got, their, their mind is going somewhere. They see something. They know something. His audience has been looking forward to this and waiting for this and thinking about this for a long time. So what is it? What is it that they had in mind? What is the kingdom of God? Put most simply, at its, at its most simple form, it is this. It's the idea that God is in charge. God is in charge. One of the best ways we get to kind of see this is in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gives these two parallel statements. Um, says, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is, is taking place on earth anywhere where the will of God is done just like it's happening in heaven. 
in heaven, everything is happening as God wants it to. And so the kingdom is where that is taking place on earth. And this is, remember, part of the larger story. We said that at the very beginning, we open up with God, sovereign over all creation. And part of what He does when He makes man and woman is He, he places in them that authority. He gives them, He says, dominion over all the earth. And they are to rule over the earth on His behalf for His namesake, for His glory, and instead they try to usurp that authority and take it for themselves, losing it to sin, losing it to Satan and His kingdom. And so the story of Scripture is God coming back to set His rule back in place, to, to reign again, to take authority back. That's, I know, a complicated statement because technically we believe this, that God is always reigning, that He is always sovereign, that He always rules. But what we're talking about is the visible expression and the acknowledgement of that. The, the place where people see and recognize God's rule and reign, where they submit to it. This is what we're talking about in the kingdom of God. And so for the whole of the Old Testament was a moving towards restoring that. And the New Testament comes and Jesus says, it's about to happen. But let me back up just a little bit more. We saw that God promised to Abraham that many nations would come to you and that, um, that kings would come from you. And then he says this, and I will give to your offspring this land and he will possess the gates of his enemies. So you're going to have this, this person, this, uh, Paul will say that it's an individual specifically he's talking about and that person is going to rule over the enemies around them. They're going to conquer those around them. They're going to be powerful. They're going to set up this kingdom. And then God says through Nathan to Daniel during the Davidic covenant or in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, he says that you will always have one on the throne, that you're going to have a kingdom that lasts forever. And so the, the Jews were looking forward to this. The Israelites were waiting for this day. And then you have this really interesting passage in Daniel 2. So go ahead and go there real quick. Daniel 2 this is during the Babylonian Empire, and, and those in Judea, many of them have been taken up to Babylon, including Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He has this incredible dream in which he sees a statue, and the statue is made up of four different parts, four and a half different parts, maybe you could say. The top of it, the head is made of gold, and then as you move on down, it's made of silver, then next is bronze, then next is iron, and then kind of at the bottom you have this mix of iron and clay kind of mixed together. And in the dream, this rock is cut out, and it says this specifically, a rock was cut out by no human hand. Something divine did this. A rock was cut out, and it began to roll down towards the statue, and then it hit it and smashed it into all these pieces. And then the rock grew up into this incredible mountain that covered the whole earth. This is the dream that he has. He doesn't know what it means. It's freaking him out a little bit. So he calls together all his wise men and all the magicians and all those things and says, I want you to, to tell me what my dream means. And they say, great, tell us what it was. And he says, no, 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 no. I want you first to tell me what the dream was and then tell me what the dream means. That way I know that you're right because you're not just making up stuff. I want to know if you can even read it. And they, of course, say, um, you're crazy. Um, no one can do that. And he says, too bad, I'll kill you if you can't. And, and so just as he's about to kill everybody, Daniel comes and he says, it's true, no one can do this, but God can. And so Daniel tells him what the dream is and then he interprets it. The interpretation is what I want us to look at real quick. Daniel 2, verse 36. This is what he says 
um, to Nebuchadnezzar. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So you're the top part of that statue. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others, just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay." And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now stop for just a second. What he just announced, what he just prophesied in that four kingdoms represented by those four parts of the statue. And this is actually how it unfolds. Um, Daniel is taken to... Babylon out of Judea in about 605 BC. So he's probably prophesying this in 605, 600 BC. And he says the gold is the kingdom of Babylon. After that comes another one, silver, which is the Persian king, uh, kingdom, the kingdom of the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. That comes in 550 BC. And then one stronger than that, made of bronze, will come. That's the Greek Empire that we just talked about, Alexander the Great. And then one made of iron, and iron smashes everything, and you will have this all powerful empire that comes. It will eventually become weakened by its dividedness, but this really powerful empire, that becomes the empire of Rome. And so Daniel prophesies 600 years ahead of time these things. Rome comes on the scene, as you saw, Greece in 330, Rome in 63 B.C. And, and Daniel prophesies these things. But then he says something really interesting in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, silver, and gold to pieces. So he says, in the time of those kings, which is a really weird thing to say because that's not how kingdoms get set up. Kingdoms get set up like this. After those kings go away, another empire comes up. He says this, in the time of those kings, in the time of Rome's reign, a new kingdom will come up. And that one will be an everlasting kingdom. That one will spread over all the earth. And the Israelites longed for and looked forward to this day. It was prophesied all the way back to David and even earlier than that. And they waited for this. The problem is that, that their experience had not been matching up with those prophecies. That this longing they had for God to restore His people, to restore His kingdom again, just wasn't working out. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they were held under the thumbs of stronger, pagan, non-God-fearing empires, and something just seemed wrong about that. 
That's why a number of them got really excited in that little hundred-year period that Ryan talked about because it seemed like things were turning around for them until Rome comes in. And so they, they, they long for it, they love it, they want it, and it seems to make sense, but for whatever reason it's not happening. And then this Jewish rabbi steps on the scene and says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, and light bulbs go off. And they start getting excited. This is what Andrew Wilson says. It would have meant to them that the kingdom of, when it says the kingdom of God is at hand, it would have meant that after hundreds of years of waiting, Yahweh was coming back to his people. His enemies were going to be crushed, specifically the Romans at that time. And his reign and his kingdom was close by. So he's rejected us for so long. We've been under these thumb of, of these um, pagan rulers because of our sin, but now he's coming back. He's going to conquer. He's going to set up his kingdom and make it great again. That's what they saw, and they were close. They were close, but not exactly right. Um, Jesus, when he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, has something different in mind than what most of slash all of the people of of Palestine had in mind at that time. Here is some things that Jesus said through his teaching. As he's walking along, as he's teaching and preaching, he begins to give these different truths about the kingdom, hinting at what it really is about, what it's really like. So I want to list off a bunch of these, and I'm going to move through these quick. Don't, if you're a note taker, you're just going to be frustrated if you're going to try to write these down. So, um, don't worry about, I was doing it and I saw one of my buddies on Sunday and he, had a, he was taking notes on his phone and it looked like his thumbs were on fire. It was just, he was trying and sweating and um, so I said, I should have told you, don't even worry about, uh, what I want to give you is not detailed because I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list of everything Jesus said about the kingdom. What I want to give you is a sketch so you can start to see the shape of it in your mind as to what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. Here's some of the things that he said about it in his teaching. First of all, he says that it's coming is good news. Literally translated, it's coming is gospel as we talk about it. But he says this, and the Jews would have known that. Yeah, it's good news. The kingdom of God is coming. But then he adds this to it. So repent, which would have seemed weird. Because what do I got to change? I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm God's people. I'm God's kingdom. I'm in on this. Jesus says, no, 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 repent because it's coming. That would have sounded a little bit weird. He says this, that to enter it, one has to become like a child. Not like a soldier, or not like a governor, or not like a king, but like a child. We usually trace that to say one has to be trusting. That may have been what he's getting at, but more than likely, in a day when children had zero socioeconomic status, he's talking about lowering oneself, losing status and importance. Said this to Nicodemus, one of those famous people sitting on the sand, or one of those really important religious people sitting on the Sanhedrin, that if you want to enter this kingdom that God is bringing, you have to be born for a second time, which really blew Nicodemus's mind. Um, he's, he asked, literally, so you're telling me like I gotta climb back in my mom's womb and get born again? And, and Jesus looks at him and says, you're supposed to be one of the smart ones? Like, you're, you're, you're supposed to be the person teaching, and, and you're struggling to grasp this, but that was the way it was when Jesus talked about the kingdom. He tells Pilate that this kingdom is not of this world. Now, many of us have taken that to, to, to kind of 
mean that it's something really spiritual and it doesn't really have anything to do with this world. That's, that's not true. It's something that really does have something to do with our world and it ought to have a profound impact on the world. When he says it's not of the world, he says it doesn't operate like the regular kingdoms of the world. He says that one of the ways you know that it's here is when I cast out demons. That's what Jesus says, which is interesting. What does casting out demons have to do with the kingdom of God? But he says when it happens, it's here. But then he also tells his disciples that they need to pray for the kingdom to come. So Jesus says it's here, and you need to pray that it would come here, is what he tells them. He also says repeatedly this, that this kingdom is for the marginalized for the people that you would least expect, for the poor and the oppressed and the downtrodden and the outsider. That's what this kingdom is for. Um, he says when, when, it's, when he's asked by some of the religious leaders, so when is, you keep talking about this kingdom, when's it going to come? Like give us, a, give us you know, an example, show us how we're going to know that it's happening. What he says to them is, no, 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 you're not going to be able to see it like you see another kingdom coming. In fact, he says, it's already among you. It's already taking place. And to kind of go on and explain this further, he says, unlike what you're envisioning, this big bang in which a general marches in and takes over an empire and gathers up a nation and builds it around himself, he says, the kingdom is less like that and more like a mustard seed that starts really, really tiny and looks really, really insignificant, but then eventually grows into this big, great Thing. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And most of these statements that Jesus would have been making about the kingdom would have been very counterintuitive to his listeners. That's just not what they were picturing. Something that starts really small. Something that's for kids. Something that you got to be born again. Something that i got to repent to get into. That, that, all of this stuff would have sounded a little bit weird and a little bit strange. But I want to look at a couple texts that would have been more than just strange. They would have been um, shocking to his listeners. The first comes in Matthew 21. Actually, the first and the second will come in Matthew 21. So turn there real quick. Matthew 21 actually lists um, kind of three different parables next to each other going into 22, but I just want to talk about two of them. What's happening in this first parable, we're going to start in verse 28 in just a second, but the setup for this is that right before this, the, the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, chief priests, and some of the teachers of the law have come to him and said, okay, you keep teaching, you keep gathering people around you, you keep making this big deal, explain to us where you think you get the authority to do all that. And, and so Jesus has this kind of showdown, he doesn't actually even, he's like, I'm not even, I'm not even bothering answering that, he kind of plays a little game with them, asking them about John the Baptist. And, and, and from there, he moves into this story. Um, starting in 28, as I said, What do you think, Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So in this story, what he's doing, he's talking to these religious leaders, and what he, he's comparing them to this second son that is all talk and looks really good at first and has his act together at first and yes, God, I want to honor you. Yes, Father, I want to do what you asked me to do, but then doesn't follow through on it. And he says, that's, that's you. That's what you're like. But the, the actual people, more like this first son who don't look like they got it together and at first they were refusing to do the right thing, but they kind of switch. He said, that's, that's the tax collectors, that's the prostitutes, and they're going to get into this kingdom before you do. Now, like we, we hear tax collector and, and we have at least one of two things that enter in our mind. Yes, of course, we know that the people didn't like tax collectors, but we kind of think, you know, nobody likes tax collectors. Who likes the IRS? Da-da-da, right? Or, or we heard our Sunday school stories about how the tax collectors would cheat people and they would, you know, tax them extra and then pocket it for themselves. That's, that's probably true. Some of that stuff was happening. Obviously, Zacchaeus was ripping people off. That's not the main reason that they hated tax collectors. They hated tax collectors because when this pagan government came in and took over God's people, tax collectors were Jewish people who saw an opportunity to make a buck and went and started working for them taxing their own people to give the money to Rome to oppress their own people. And that's why they hated him. That's, that's ISIS coming in and taking over America and your entire neighborhood mourning and angry and bitter about it, except for that one neighbor down the street who decides he's going to go work for ISIS so he can get rich. And everybody hates him, and then Jesus shows up and says, and he gets in before you do. He and the porn stars, they're getting into the kingdom before you. That's what Jesus says to these people. That would not have just been shocking. That would have been infuriating to them. They're turning red in the face when Jesus makes this statement about them. And here they are. They're about to come up and, and start to argue with them. And Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. I got another story for you, which is what I love about Jesus. Wait, I got one. You think that one made you mad? Here, let me tell you, let me tell you one more story. And so he goes into another one from here in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And then he, sent an, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? This is how they responded. Well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118 there. Therefore, and here's the statement, I tell you, 
that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And listen to this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. He uses this image of a vineyard. That was actually a fairly common one for describing the people of God, Israel. And the tenants would have been the leaders. And he says, this God sent his servants, that is the prophets, over and over again. And all you leaders ever did was take them and beat them and kill them. And so now the time has come and God is sending not just a servant, not just a prophet, but his own son to you. And let me just tell you what you're going to do ahead of time. Let me just call it. You're going to kill him too. And, and just like the owner of the vineyard wouldn't put up with that, don't think that God is going to put up with you anymore. And he says this, that he's going to take the vineyard, he's going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to other peoples. What he seems to be talking about and what he makes more clear in the next parable is Gentiles. Not that he's taken away from Jews completely, but there's going to be a new kingdom that includes Gentiles. That, that's not right. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit the paradigm that these people have been looking for and expecting their whole lives. They're going to take this away from you. But, but this is really interesting what he says. Um, he says in 44... Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Sounds like Daniel 2. This new kingdom that's coming, and yet the stone he's talking about actually seems to be him, he himself. And so what we discover about the kingdom in this passage is that it is centered around Jesus himself. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about himself. And what you do with the Son, what you do with me, determines whether or not you're in the kingdom or not. He builds the entire kingdom of God around himself. One last passage and then we'll close out. Mark 8. Many commentators will tell you that the passage that we're um, reading in Mark 8 is actually the linchpin of Mark's gospel. The whole book builds up to this point and then unfolds out of this passage in Mark 8. I want to start you back in verse 27. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Your, your translation may say, you are the Christ. Christ is literally Christos, the Greek word for Messiah. Christ, every time you, you see the word or the, the name Jesus Christ, what it means is Christ means king or Christ means Messiah, Messiah means King. So Jesus, King, is, is essentially what you're reading there. Peter says this, you are the promised Messiah, you are the saving King that we've been waiting for all these years. Now, Jesus says, keep it quiet, they, they call this, and this has confused people for a long time, they call it the Messianic secret. And that is that Jesus does not 
announce this with trumpets. He doesn't go out yelling this and in fact tries to keep it a secret a lot. I think largely because the major misperception of what the Messiah was, that as soon as word gets out that he's the Messiah, the Jews have all these faulty expectations about what that's supposed to be. We're going to see that actually right here. So they said it, you are the king, and then look in verse 31. This is what Jesus says right afterwards. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now that phrase right there that he uses to describe himself, Son of Man, that is Jesus' favorite term for himself. He calls himself that more than anything else. And that always confused me. Son of God is what you are. Why do you keep stressing the man part? Why do you keep stressing the humanity part? Uh, That might be a little bit of what he's doing is stressing the humanity part. What he's actually doing more than anything is he's taking a term out of Daniel 7 that they all would have known. The Son of Man is this character that shows up in Daniel 7, and it says this, that the Ancient of Days, that is, God Himself, gives unto this one like the Son of Man, this Son of Man, all the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations, and His kingdom is an everlasting one, and His dominion is an everlasting one. And Jesus says, that's me, the Son of Man. But then He says this, the Son of Man will suffer, the Son of Man will die. Now that, that doesn't work. (laughs) Um, that's, not, that's not what the Messiah was supposed to do. The Messiah, by definition, is supposed to win. The, the Messiah, by definition, is supposed to conquer. He's supposed to kill, not be killed. And, and so that's, something's not sitting right. And Peter knows, obviously, that Jesus is wrong. He's getting a little bit confused about what he's supposed to be doing. So he goes and he wants to correct him. This is what he does in verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, he's about to set up one of the major definers of the kingdom of God. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. This is one of the key truths spoken about the kingdom of God is that unlike every other kingdom in which the goal is to move as high as you possibly can up the chain, as high as you can up the ladder of success, this kingdom is not one of upward mobility and self-promotion. Instead, it's a kingdom of self-sacrifice. In fact, the very doors to this kingdom get opened by the sacrifice of the king himself. That's how this kingdom operates. That's how this thing works, but it doesn't end in death. He says in verse 31 that after three days this king will rise again. So, when Jesus came and he said this, the kingdom of God is at hand, what the Jews thought was, God is coming and he's going to conquer all his enemies and he's going to set up the new kingdom. The only problem is they were just wrong about the enemies part. God did come, and He did conquer His enemies, but what was taking place was His conquering greater enemies than Rome, greater enemies than the Greeks or the Seleucid Empire. He was coming to conquer sin and death itself. And then in the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection together, He accomplishes 
both of those things. It's the resurrection that actually confirmed and vindicated everything that Jesus said. Because time after time, these Jewish men had risen up and said, I'm the Messiah, everybody follow me. And people would follow him, and then they died, and everybody left. And a new person would come and say, I'm the Messiah, and then he would go, and he would get killed by the Romans. And of course, Messiahs don't get killed, and so he must not have been the Messiah, and they leave. And then another one comes, and it would keep happening. This one comes, and he gets killed by the the Romans, and everybody stays. And everybody not only starts to say, I think he's our king, they also start to say, I think he's our God. And they start to worship him. The, The difference is this one didn't stay dead. And because he didn't stay dead, they were able to see that he really was the king that he promised. And this new kingdom, this is one of the ways that we get this idea about the kingdom. This is a key phrase about the kingdom of God. It is now and not yet. Because what the resurrection shows us is that already God and his kingdom are breaking through and yet it's not yet. There will be a day when everything is made right and death and sin become completely undone and the kingdom of God will come over all the earth. The resurrection is the first fruits of that. The resurrection is the promise that that day is coming. Next week, what we're going to talk about is, just before the resurrection actually, what happened on the cross, two sessions on atonement, and how that plays out throughout Scripture and into our lives today. Um, Man, we just unloaded a lot on you, so in the last three or four minutes, any any questions or any thoughts kind of pop in your mind as as we're going through this stuff? (laughs) All right. I hope it's been helpful, and like I said, next week we'll get, we'll get together and we'll be talking through atonement. I'm excited about that, and we'll see you guys then.